But you know, this is a film about prostitution, but it almost dare not speak its name. It's that kind of a thing. And, and that, that reservation I had very strongly throughout the entire film. It really bothered me in a lot of ways. So yeah, I'll, I'll be downright a Puritan by the end of our discussion, but that bothered me. What worked in the film extremely well was aspects of the premise, these really well-off people. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about Asteroid City and No Hard Feelings. And we're going to start with the Wes Anderson movie, Asteroid City. Mike, this is such a weird movie. I hardly even know where to jump in, so I'm going to let you set the stage. Well, Wes Anderson is a writer-director that Marie likes a lot more than I do. <laughs> so I'm going to get right out there with it. And I'm not going to be polite and set it up. One reason why I have mixed feelings about him is he's obviously talented. And watching a Wes Anderson film is a visual treat in terms of production design, just in terms of the overall conception of it, it's really quite striking. And, and another thing that you know works in his favor is that he has large ensemble casts. And there's so many famous actors. They may only pop up for a few minutes, but you know what? It's fun. It's like a parlor game. Oh, there's so-and-so, that mm-hmm. kind of a thing. Now, where I have the major reservation is, is that for all that visual beauty, for all the cleverness of it, I feel that most of his films tend to lack momentum. They set up a premise, they set up a setting or a place, and then it's just, you know, working variations on that. So if they work for you, they work in a kind of not chamber drama, more like chamber comedy kind of way. You just have, you know, this group of characters in, in, a, in a really cleverly designed space or spaces and, and just working variations on, on a theme, if you will. And for me, the reservation as well, it's whimsical, it's charming it's impressive that way but to what end there's not really narrative momentum there's not much to be said for it and also there's not internal consistency it doesn't always make sense let me let me cut to the chase on this one with uh, asteroid city the film is set in 1955 in a southwestern town it's all beautifully realized on screen see it on a big screen if at all possible it's really a, a treat for the eyes that way And the premise of sorts is that the film opens in black and white, and it's a TV host. It's a TV show, if you will. Brian Cranston plays the the, the TV host, and he's talking right to us. He's like the narrator. And he's telling us that what we're going to watch now is the creation of a new play called Asteroid City. And it's going to be like a behind the scenes thing. And what we're looking behind the scenes at, presumably, and again, bear in mind, 1955, would be a Playhouse 9D or Studio One type show. Like, let's take you behind the scenes. You'll see how a play is actually written and then staged. And and of course, those were the days of live television where then you actually would be, you know, broadcasting that live or just a, a quick tape delay, whatever. But in any event that you are showing it, you know, as it's happening, what's not. So that's a workable premise, but the film almost immediately violates that in all sorts of ways. And, I, and I've talked to other people about the film. And, and, and when I've asked like those sternly logical questions, they'd have to acknowledge it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold up because you have this TV host in 1955 taking you behind the scenes. And then, you know, you're going to cut from black and white to color footage, but then showing, OK, the playwright played by Columbia's own Edward Norton. And you know, any number of people there who are like actors portraying these characters, sometimes it stays within that framework. Like here are the actors playing the characters, here they are on stage. But then you know what? In a matter of minutes, it's giving you vistas, literally like John Ford worthy vistas of, of the old West, you know, Monument Valley type images. Well, that wasn't Playhouse 90 or Studio One. When you went outdoors in a show like that, you were still on the stage almost always, right? It was a painted backdrop or something. So it almost immediately violates that. And then I was watching the film because I had so little to think about otherwise as I was watching I thought well how does this work within the premise and it really doesn't at all and the film itself sometimes totally forgets 
the premise, you know, the framework of it. And then sometimes it seems to remember it. And Marie, let me ask you about that. Like I had all sorts of like, are they pragmatic questions or, or metaphysical questions <laughs> or both? As I watch it, like, what is this supposed to be? That's one reason why I think it called it so weird, because it obviously doesn't fit in a box. One reason it doesn't is because it doesn't play by its own rules. Well, I love everything that you said. And I will, I will just respond by first saying, what premise? This is a Wes Anderson movie. I mean, yes, there's a story. I think it's too convoluted for most people to follow. But what I enjoy about it, which is what I enjoy about all of his movies, is it's like, you know, you got to sit down and instead of walking through a museum of modern art, they just put it on in front of you. So they just give you the series of images that are just so beautifully rendered. That's what I enjoy about all of his movies. That's why I loved French Dispatch. I know you weren't that fond of it. But for me, it was like thumbing through a New Yorker magazine beautifully realized on the screen, just absolutely gorgeous to look at. And this movie is absolutely gorgeous to look at. But the the dual stories where you're going back and forth between it's a play about Asteroid City. No, it's not. It's about aliens coming down uh, and visiting this town in the middle of the desert, you know, full of scientific geniuses. A lot of it is really clunky and doesn't work. The cast of thousands is sort of fabulous because, like you said, it is a parlor game to recognize you know, all the famous people that are in it. But even that is kind of hit or miss. Edward Norton, I think, is terrible in this role as a writer. And as much as I love Tom Hanks, he just can't do the deadpan delivery that everybody else is committed to for this. But Scarlett Johansson is incredible. What do you think, Mike? Well, you know, you've actually said a number of things that I would have said, so I'll just repeat them. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it is fun in that parlor game way just to spot the faces. And yeah, it's not one of Edward Norton's better performances, but uh, I've got to say on his behalf, it's not much of a character either. You know what I mean? He only pops up like for a minute here, a minute there. What could you do with it? Even He doesn't do much with it, but what could you do with it? Tom Hanks, I think, is trying to play a curmudgeon, but, you know, he's, he's such a nice guy actor that, that that sort of peeps through maybe more than it should. And other actors who've done better work elsewhere. It's true. Tilda Swinton plays a scientist. I think any number of other people could have played that role. It's not, you know, what we really want from Tilda Swinton in various ways. But there are a few of the actors who, who do well by their parts. And as you say, and I agree very strongly, Scarlett Johansson's terrific here. She plays a character named Mitch Campbell. She's the star, if you will. And she's very much got a star persona. And boy, she vamps in a way that's so much fun to watch. And, and like so many of the other characters are just like small town characters, but she comes in like the big, you know, theater star slash TV star slash movie star, whatever. She's the package that way. And, and she plays it for all it's worth. And, and, and what she does so well is she's essentially acknowledging that she's in what I would call a live action cartoon. You know, a lot of these characters are a bit outsized. She runs with it. She goes with it. She's not trying to humanize it overly much. She just has fun with the surface glamour. Because when you come down to it, Marie, you're right. I was probably being too generous in using the word premise. I'll put quotation marks around premise. <laughs> I'll just say point of departure kickoff point. Because ultimately, as you're watching it, it really is just, and how can I say this without seeming really condescending and, and snide, but it's eye candy. And, and there were places where I thought, wow, what a beautiful image. But it's the kind of movie where if I were looking at a, at a uh, newspaper or magazine article about it, which I have been, just staring at the still photos, staring at the images, how beautiful those shots are. But, you know, at feature length, for me, that really wears thin after a while. And all of those plots or subplots or whatever they are, I was tracking them, but I realized it doesn't matter. Who cares? You know, and you feel like Wes Anderson himself is just dabbling. It's like somebody having fun moving pieces around on the game board. And so I never was emotionally invested in any 
of that, even though presumably, and we have to use the word premise, that, that there, there should be some acknowledgement that, you know, it's, that, hey, it's the Southwestern desert. Aren't we like pretty close to Los Alamos and so on? And, and so you're going to have like, you know, the mushroom cloud in the distance. You're going to have scientists gathered at a top secret facility. Uh, you're going to have quasi serious subject matter that way. But it's very much of the 50s in the sense that, well, yes, you have all that. And because of all that, you have sci-fi movies with aliens coming down to the earth. I mean, that's very much part of, you know, circa 1955 American culture. So he knows his material. He knows it that way. So I, th I would say the best consumer advice is just open your eyes, see it on a big screen, enjoy those images and go with the flow or I'll call it meaningless flow. Just go with it. And, and it's it's definitely worth watching on that level. But you know, for me, it's a series of missed opportunities in terms of what you could have done with the material. You know, I think he's kind of coasting after a while. He has great production design. He has a great imagination, but it's not channeled always very well. Well, the cinematography is, is stunning, of course. I think we both agree on that. But I think the problem is that it's too ambitious. And I think he was too taken with the idea of including the who's who of, of Hollywood actors, because it would have been a better movie if it wasn't two different parallel lines of action. If he just picked one, and I would have picked the one that had all of the candy-colored visuals and, you know, half of the cast, although, you know, we just said that part of the fun was watching who showed up. But in terms of the story, it, you just get lost trying to to follow everything. It's, it's probably a movie better watched twice, but I don't know if you're going to get people to go back to take a look at what they missed because it just doesn't. And this is kind of a problem with all of his movies. It just doesn't really hold down a real story. It's more about style than substance. And I say this as, as someone who really likes this movie for that very reason, you know, it's going to be visual potato chips. So is it too ambitious or is it lacking in ambition? See that? Oh, wow. <laughs> see, flip, flip the equation. And that's what I'm getting at. It seems to me because he's smart, because he's clever, because he has a great eye, it's easy to coast on that. And when you're coasting like that, it's easy to work up permutations on your point of departure. Yeah, oh, these, these, this ensemble of, of eccentric characters all pushed together. This happens, that happens. For me, his movies are exercising, well, there, there's a lot happening and there's nothing happening. You know what I mean? They're his movies are busy. They're not static on screen. They are busy. And yet they do strike me as, as being thematically static after a while. There's not much really happening. Although he's trying to cram a lot of things in there. I mean, the whole um, inference of COVID and the pandemic. I mean, it's sort of clever because of when it comes out, but years and years from now, when people find it on DVD or however it's delivered from the cloud, are they going to find that to be a compelling side narrative or just a kind of tongue in cheek thing for, you know, if you watched it back in the day? Well, you know what, he really does have, I mean, you love his films and you're, you're hardly alone. I'm probably the one with the minority opinion here because there's, it goes beyond a cult. He really has a following. I, I went to the, the, the opening night of it and the theater was crowded with mostly young audience members, you know, like teens, 20s, into their 30s, which is still young for me. You know, so people in that age demographic who, who really clearly knew his films, and they were talking about this one as they left the theater. So there's definitely a, a, a fan club with millions of members in it. And I, I, and I can understand why. I, I mean, you know, again, we keep using expressions like whether popcorn or eye candy, whatever. But, but you know, it's really easy to watch one of his movies in that sense. There's so much pleasure for the eye that I don't want to deny that. that there are absolutely knockout images here. 
And, you know, and I can appreciate that. So, you know, it, approaching as a formalist would think about composition on screen. There, there's some genius in this film, even in terms of where the figures are placed and the backdrop and all. And, and as you mentioned earlier, the cinematography, it's really gorgeous filmmaking. And sometimes that's enough for me. I, I wish it were enough in this case, but it, it's almost enough. And that's why I think this movie could get a director's nomination or cinematography for sure, but certainly not best picture because it's, it's just got a lot of parts that just don't quite mesh that just don't quite go together now i i read somebody describing it as close encounters meets schenectady new york and wanted to get your take on that but also to ask you they wrote the part for scarlett johansson specifically and she's supposed to be like a marilyn monroe character and she certainly kind of exudes the um the confidence and the sexuality but she's so much more confident when i think of marilyn monroe i think of somebody very very vulnerable and I'm not sure that came across with Scarlett Johansson. So what did you think about that as well? It's a really good observation because anytime you read about Marilyn Monroe, people always talk about her, her insecurity, her vulnerability, that even when she's playing confident or brassy, you can see beneath that. It's because of the insecurity that suddenly she has the, the, the brave facade or something. But the, the Johansson character, it's probably better not to think about Marilyn Monroe here because they really don't match up in terms of personalities. Even though she looks enough like Monroe, it's really a different personality type. This is a Hollywood star who has absolute self-confidence. She knows she's beautiful. She knows she's powerful. She knows how to project that. And she she's as alien as the aliens themselves, right? Because she's kind of touched down among some rather ordinary people. And, and you know, it's, it is funny to watch her interact with some of the other characters because she really is showbiz royalty within this world in, out in the desert there. And, and Johansson knows how to play that to the hilt. She does that really well. So I would find it distracting, to, as I say, to follow through on the Monroe analogy because she's really not like Marilyn Monroe. She looks that way, but it's a different personality. But so, so strike that and just watch her as a big Hollywood movie star plunked down in the desert. She might as well have come down in a spaceship. You know, there she is suddenly in the middle of the desert. And she's actually among the actors, none of whom will be nominated for anything here. But if anyone were to be, you know, as a supporting actress, she could get a nomination, actually, as supporting actress, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I think she is definitely a nominee because I think she is the standout in, in this movie. Absolutely agree with you about that. I do want to mention that there was a nude scene with Scarlett Johansson, but, you know, she's been nude in other movies like Under the Skin. She said she wasn't even all that nervous about doing that scene. I don't think she needed to be nude. I don't think so either. Admittedly, I kept my eyes open. I watched it. But but as I watched, I thought, you know, you don't need that here. It seemed gratuitous in a way, didn't yes, it? It did. It, it just it doesn't, it doesn't within the storyline or with the character, you don't need to see that. And I don't know how to explain that other than that she's not shy about such matters, right? So if the director says, you know, this is what you do here, you know, she would do it and not blink. But as this is again where it doesn't really follow through on like character, like for that character. You typically wouldn't see a Hollywood star that way in 1955. You know, even Monroe, the, the, those Playboy years were years before. You wouldn't typically see that. Uh, to me, it was distracting. And, and if, if I say it should be cut out, I'll have people complaining. No, it was my favorite shot. You know, <laughs> but Maria, I agree with you there. It just seems to me there was a, an error in. Should we call it like creative judgment? You know, on Wes Anderson's mm -hmm. part. Like, well, why? Why you don't need that? Because even though other characters have a sort of voyeuristic interest in looking at her, you know, in her in her cabin, you don't have to follow through to that extent, particularly in a movie in, in the mid-50s where it's oftentimes a more peekaboo, more innuendo, more suggestive sort of way, whereas today's movies, yeah, do tend to be blunt and here, here's the shot. And I thought it sort of spoiled it that way. I would have been happier just with like a glimpse of her, like through the mm -hmm. curtains or, in, you know, I'm getting it. I just think that would have worked better, actually. 
Because yeah. then your imagination would fill in any, any, you know, explicit details. But here it's just like, bam, there's this shot. It sort of, it threw the movie out of kilter a bit. I was actually surprised when, when that shot came on. I thought, this doesn't belong in this movie. It was also anachronistic in, in that exactly what you said. Uh, you wouldn't be expecting that in that time period. So it's got a little bit of shock value, but then you're like, wait, that didn't really advance the plot. That was just something, hey, we've got Scarlett Johansson. Hey, let's just put her nude in the movie for no apparent reason. But I will say that kind of underscores what I think is one of the messages, which is nothing makes sense. You know, what you need to do is figure out who you are, accept who you are and what your life is and not worry about what comes next. But that's kind of the, like the Zen underpinning of the movie, which I may be giving it too much credit. Mike, what do you think? <laughs> I, I think you're giving it too much credit. <laughs> but for the sake of argument, I'll agree just that, yeah, that, that, that could be an underpinning. All right, well, let's move on to No Hard Feelings, which is a Jennifer Lawrence vehicle. And I saw this in a theater with one other person who I think when I walked in, he was very disappointed. He wasn't going to get Jennifer Lawrence all to himself. So how was the movie for you when you watched it, Mike? And what were your initial thoughts? Well, when we debated whether Asteroid City had a premise or not, No Hard Feelings definitely has a premise. Here, here, here's the premise. There's a, a couple living in Montauk, Long Island. We're talking like, you know, real money and sense of, uh, you know, sense of worth and so on. And, and kind of quirky in their own way because, and they're played by Matthew Broderick and, and Laura Benani. And, and this, this well-off couple living in Montauk, they have a 19-year-old son who's about to go off to college, Princeton specifically. And, you know, again, a really privileged, what we would call a privileged upbringing. And, and they have this notion, he's really socially withdrawn. He's kind of, you know, dweeby, dorky, you know, whatever, which, you know, it's not unusual at that age, right? So, and, and he's really, he's, he's not been dating, to put it politely, right? So they think, you know, our son is like so withdrawn, like sort of just by himself in his room and not really with friends, much less girlfriends. They decide to put it somewhat bluntly, he should be deflowered. People still use expressions like that. <laughs> he should be sexually initiated before he goes off to college. It's really the parents' idea. So we can hold them in the docket, if you will, if there's some sort of ethical court that's going to judge them, but that they want their son to be, to, to be you know, no longer a virgin. So let's out and out say that. So what they do, and, and this is where the film, I think, is rather ethically dubious, so I have it in the docket already, is they decide that they should hire a, a young woman to, quote unquote, date, date their son during that final summer before college. So Jennifer Lawrence plays the, the young woman. And one thing the film does well is that they're advertising for a woman who's like between 20 and 25, close enough to his 19. She, her character is stated to be 32. So she, she still looks great because she's Jennifer Lawrence. And, and yet, you know, she's, she makes the case to the parents. I know I'm a little older than what you're looking for, but hey, you know, I, I can do this. And one thing that actually does work well in a sort of socioeconomic sense within the storyline is, as I've mentioned, those parents, that family, they're extremely well off. We're talking, you know, the Hamptons kind of wealth. They're really well off. And yet, you know, when you're in a town like Montauk, you have the townies, you have the working class people who actually, you know, who, who wait on your table, who tend bar, who do those things, who oftentimes can cannot afford or barely afford to live in the town where they're working. Jennifer Lawrence is that kind of working class hard scrabble background. Without giving every plot point away here, she's really financially hard up. She's struggling. That's why she's going to take this, this job because of, you know, what they're offering her by way of compensation. Now, on a pragmatic level, you could say, okay, socioeconomically, they're well off. Off, they want their son to be initiated. She's wanting to take on the job, the 
role, whatever you want to call it. And yet the film truly does give the once over lightly treatment to the fact that essentially, let's just say it, she's a prostitute, you know, that they're hiring her for sex. And the film has some fun with that, if that's the way to put it. It, it sort of jokes around. And there are a few discussions where she and her friends will actually like actively mention what I'm talking about right now. But for the most part, it just slides by. For the most part, it, it's just like a rom-com kind of thing. And I'm thinking, well, I don't want to sound prudish, but you know, this is a film about prostitution, but it almost dare not speak its name. It's that kind of a thing. And, and that that reservation I had very strongly throughout the entire film. It really bothered me in a lot of ways. So yeah, I'll, I'll be downright a Puritan by the end of our discussion, but that bothered me. What worked in the film extremely well was aspects of the premise, these really well-off people on Long Island, and then the working class people they interact with. And yeah, all that actually has some interesting observations within it. And what also worked extremely well was the casting. Jennifer Lawrence is ideal for this role. So too is Andrew Barth Feldman as, as she plays Maddie. And, and so too is Andrew Barth Feldman as Percy, the 19-year-old kid. They are extremely well cast. They, just as actor to actor, they work together really well. And that always held my interest in the film and kept me with it through all my strong moral reservations. How about you? Well, I want to say I learned a new term that I had never heard before. We talk all the time about rom-com. This is a raunch-com. And it makes me think of movies like Wedding Crashers or American Pie, you know, where the, the premise is something that's just essentially campy. And in a lot of ways, when I was watching it, I thought, you know, this is almost a good movie. It did have some moments that were genuinely funny, but then some real clunkers, like if they just could have spent a little more time on the script and editing, it could have been a way better movie. But one thing I wanted to bring up just in terms of let's just address that ick factor that, yeah, you could make American Pie and Wedding Crashers years ago, but maybe not today after Me Too and, and just the whole, um, you know, the idea of, of somebody being taken advantage of. I, I mean, that's just kind of a gross concept, no matter how you try to package it, even if you're trying to make it campy or, or funny or whatever or in the style of, you know, porkies of yore. And I think the problem is that Jennifer Lawrence plays the older character. But one thing I want to mention is that when she did Silver Linings Playbook with Bradley Cooper, there was a 15-year difference between them and nobody minded. So there's a little, uh, you know, a little bit of hypocrisy here in, in being clutching our pearls over the fact that, you know, this, this older woman, so to speak, is leading this young man down the wrong path and he doesn't even get a, a say in it or even be aware that his parents are doing it. I mean, way to become a man. I, that does, the whole premise falls apart in terms of anybody wanting that except for you know, everybody in the world who thinks it would be great under any circumstances if Jennifer Lawrence came onto them. Well, you know, one thing that is interesting, again, in that sort of socioeconomic way is, is that, you know, these are the proverbial helicopter parents, what they won't do for their kid. And, and even though it's so dubious in so many ways, it's like it is plausible at a certain level that they've got the money, they, they want to do everything for the kid. And, and yeah, they make a terrible decision, I think. But, but the fact that they might well decide something like that. But to your other point, Marie, when we talk about the age difference, yeah, I think you do make valid observations about the age difference and how viewers perceive that in movies like this and other films. However, regardless of the age difference, we're still essentially talking about a woman hired to be a prostitute. So, so whether, whether, whether she is, you know, a few years older or more than a decade older, it's still that same basic premise, isn't it, that she's been hired to do this. And I don't think the film ever really, you know, wraps itself around that in a meaningful way. I think it treats it as, as sex farce material, rom-com material. And, and uh, what I like so much about what you said is the film is extremely uneven. There are scenes that work really well, even if, even though I'm having these 
strong reservations. I can have to acknowledge certain scenes are really funny, really work well. And again, because of those two actors so well cast, yes, but just in the script. But then there are other scenes, and you use the ideal word here of clunky. Some of the other scenes are so clunky, so awkward, so unnecessary, if you will. It's like, oh, brother, you know, like, like what you would expect in a Porky's type film, you know, which, you know, on its own level, okay, if that's what it's going to be, but this film aspires to be at least something more, something better. And this film is so uneven. It just bounces around that way. And I had, I shared your very strong feeling that it works well considering all those things to consider, but it could have been so much better. You know, in, in terms of thinking about our students, the fact that she's an Uber driver, I think was just a genius way to present her because how many students do we have that are, you know, struggling to make ends meet and, you know, working the gig economy and all that? That was a brilliant choice. But there's a whole scene on the beach, and I'm thinking this is why a lot of people go see the movie in the first place. So let's talk about it, where she plays the scene buck naked and gets into a fight. But there's no reason for her to be naked. And P.S. You don't really see anything. Spoiler alert. What did you think of that scene, Mike? Why was that even in there? It, again, it was really so gratuitous. It's pandering in a lot of ways. Like, you know, why people go to see a movie like this. And it doesn't play to advantage in the sense that, you know, in terms of her character and anything resembling like dignity, modesty, whatever you want to call it, that's really where you feel like like the the people who made the movie are just really pandering, really pushing it that way to, to give the audience what it wants. That's where, again, the film ultimately wants to tell a story about dual personal growth that, that both the older woman and the younger man will learn from these experiences and so on and, and it really in a sentimental way towards the end really pushes that and yet along the way there are all these like really gratuitous you know when you mention films like Porky's just like really silly stupid you know offensive things along the way it really is raunchy at times in ways it doesn't need to be raunchy and so that scene on the beach you're referring to on the one hand I wasn't surprised by because the films had some other moments like that where it pushes more than it needs to. But to me, I just felt like I was sort of turned off in the sense of it really, I keep using the word pandering, but it, was, but it was just like playing to the audience that way. And I wasn't sure that her character would do that. I, it seemed that the, the filmmakers are doing that. They're pushing it. I don't know if her character would do that necessarily. So yes, I watched it because, you know, I watch all these things. I'm not going to turn away from it, but watching it, I just thought, you know, I don't need to see this. You know, it, it's just, it's just really unnecessary. And weren't you like really bothered by that? It just really like you felt almost insulted by it. Well, I was thinking, like I said, sitting there thinking, this is almost a good movie. And then the scenes like that made me think, while they were looking at the dailies, they were thinking, yeah, this is tanking. I know. Let's uh, put Jennifer uh, Lawrence naked on the beach. And then we can at least, you know, sell that idea and people will go watch it. It almost seemed that calculated. Do you, you know what? Speaking of cal you know, Murray, speaking of calculated, I looked at a movie poster for No Hard Feelings and uh, almost everywhere, uh, look at a movie poster and somewhere you'll have the rating, right? This one actually had a bar with, with you know, R, R, rated R kind of thing. It, it called your attention to the fact that it was an R-rated movie. So it's absolutely what you're talking about. The people who made and promoted this movie, they want to give you the poster image and right on the poster, it says rated R, you know, big block letters even. But okay, I mean, as if I didn't know already, but that's the selling point. So, so, so much for like heartfelt sentiment and personal growth and this and that. They're selling it as a raunchy comedy. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are. And and there's also just like a little bit of a, a Mrs. Robinson thing. But let's face it, there's things that happen in The Graduate that make that a completely different movie. I mean, in, in just so many ways. But one of the lines that cracked me up and not the, the guy who was there, obviously, to watch Jennifer Lawrence be beautiful. But they're at some sort of party and Jennifer Lawrence is there as his date. It's the throwaway line as she's walking by. One of the girls says to another, whose mom is that? <laughs> uh, hilarious. I mean, moments like that, I thought were really right on the money. 
for people like me watching the movie who I would I would not expect that because to me Jennifer Lawrence looks really young and beautiful but she is just not going to blend in with a younger group and her being able to or character being able to be shown that way I think was kind of brave so yeah, I, I like did, I liked some things about that I like that scene for the same reason you did. Like it's kids, if you will, young adults at the party. And from their perspective, she's somebody's mom. That? Yeah. And then indeed the way she reacts to that, her response to it is so brazen. It's really funny to watch her pushing through the party. And then of course, like, you know, the host, you know, the, those parents, I mean, how they were saying, you don't belong here, get out of here kind of thing. Like she's a criminal for having been, mm -hmm. for having crashed this party. But th those are scenes that work really well. If it had more scenes like that, it would have been a much stronger film. Yeah, I'm, maybe there's a director's cut out there that's better. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other podcasts at atmhcc.podbean.com. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Media Podcast.